Welcome back to the program. Father Lewis is going to lead us in a scripture reading and a prayer. Father. Our scripture passage will be a portion of the gospel for the Mass of Monday of Holy Week. Six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. They gave a dinner for him there, and Martha served, while Lazarus was one of those reclining at table with him. Mary took a liter of costly perfumed oil made from genuine aromatic nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and dried them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Then Judas the Iscariot, one of his disciples, and the one who would betray him, said, Why was this oil not sold for three hundred days' wages and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and held the money bag and used to steal the contributions. So Jesus said, Leave her alone. Let her keep this for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Lord Jesus Christ, as we enter into the height and the holiness of, the, of this week, the holiest time of the year, in preparation for celebrating your passion and resurrection. We ask your blessings among us this day, that with open minds and hearts we would receive what word you would have us receive to help us enter more deeply into the mystery of your passion. All this we ask in your most holy name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father Lewis. Hey, Father Lewis, we were both right. Isn't it? It's always a good thing when we can both be right, even though we had a different answer. <laughs> how, how does that even happen? You know, Holy Spirit. Yeah. <laughs> what am I talking about? We were talking before the program that it's like, now wait a minute, don't the days between Palm Sunday and uh, in Holy Thursday, don't they have names? And I was like, isn't it something like Holy Monday, Holy Tuesday, Holy Wednesday? And you said, well, I think it's Spy Wednesday. Well, guess what Wikipedia says? Oh, Wikipedia. Wikipedia says it's Holy Monday, Holy Tuesday, and Holy Wednesday, or Spy Wednesday. Hey, we nailed it. Ta-da, <laughs> let's go. And and I'm like, I think Holy Monday has something to do with the uh, with going to Bethany. And sure enough, yep. it's the gospel. Yeah. <laughs> Look at that. I'm, I'm, I'm doing a victory lap here, Father. <laughs> let's go. We're nailing it. Yeah. And then Holy Tuesday is about Jesus predicting his own death in John 12 and John 13. And then Spy Wednesday, because? Or Holy Wednesday? Judas goes to the temple to get his 30 pieces of silver. Nice. That's not nice, but... Well, yeah, that's yeah. the accurate answer. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Now, Holy Thursday is also called another name. What's that other name? Maundy Thursday. Maundy Thursday. Yeah. Why, is, why is it called Maundy Thursday? I never knew why it was called Maundy Thursday. Maundy's just another word for holy. Oh, well, so there you go. Kind yeah. of a, that was kind of a trick. Was that a trick question? No. Yeah. I, I wonder what language that's derived from. <laughs> I, think it's, is that, I think it's Old English. Oh, okay. Oh. I, I, I don't... Right. I, I'm just going to make it up. It's yes, not... it's, it's definitely... It's Old English. <laughs> yeah, Canterbury Tales. It's Old English. Yeah. Uh, and so then that begins the Triduum. Yeah. Okay, here's a here's a question for you. We want to get this one right. Uh-oh. Okay, my daughter, uh, Mary Grace, is doing the nine first Fridays. She's like, Dad, what happens? The first Friday of April is Good Friday. There's no Mass. Am I, do I have to reset? What's going on? And I gave her, I texted my answer. I want to see if I'm right. Okay, so what did I say? What's the answer to that? The answer is for the first Friday devotion, it's not a matter of going to Mass on each of the first nine Fridays. Uh, but to receive Holy Communion. Is it really? It is, yeah. Wow, I that's a that... better answer than mine. <laughs> Holy cow, that is, I didn't know that. Yeah, because wow. I wondered about that, because that happened, uh, um, 
it happened a couple of times in my years as a priest where the first Friday um, in April was also Good Friday, and people are wondering, well, what do we do? And so I looked it up, and I think that the church in her wisdom, well, rather the Lord, of course, in his perfect wisdom, anticipated that and specified it's a matter of receiving Holy Communion in a state of grace on the first Fridays, not going to Mass. So wow. there you go. That's an improvement <laughs> on my answer. Okay, let, answer? Me, let me tell you my answer, and I, I don't know, maybe I'm just as liturgical gymnastics, but I said, well, it's the sacred triduum, so it's one event broken up over three days. So the Mass of the Lord's Supper on Holy Thursday is actually in the evening. So that's the vigil of Good Friday. And so it counts. So go to Mass on Holy Thursday, and that has the rollover effect, especially on uh, as it concerns the Sacred Triduum, that that's the Mass that rolls into Good Friday. Okay. I, I can buy it. Is that liturgical <laughs> gymnastics? Is that theological kind of... could be a stretch, but it makes sense. Ooh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I, I, your answer is a lot cleaner and simpler. Okay. <laughs> now, you notice I've been asking you questions, and I've been talking a lot about right and wrong. All right. I have an insight that I was sharing last week on Sound Insight about Lent, and it's this. I, I want you to, re- to kind of give me your take on this, that... Um, the best insights that I'm gaining, self-knowledge that I'm gaining this Lent, have not come when I get things right, but they've come when I've fallen short, when I get things wrong. Mm -hmm. So wait a minute. Somehow in my pursuit of my own Lenten obligations, it's not the successes that have brought the greatest spiritual insight, and therefore uh, spiritual acts that advance me, but literally my failures have been the greatest source of grace. Does that make any sense at all? It does. I think uh, for me personally, if I were getting everything right, I wonder if I would even be uh, cognizant of that, let alone grateful for the graces I have Oh, are you have kidding received. me? I'd be so proud. I'm like, <laughs> I, I am like spiritual Superman here. Oh, Let's go. I feel like I'm just kind of kind of coasting. In fact, if Lent <laughs> were a little too easy, like maybe I'm getting the graces I need to to uh, persevere, but, but I'm not recognizing that because, you know, how many people driving down the road just say, you know, this is a really well-paved road. We don't think that. We're just going from A to B. But as soon as we hit that pothole, it's like, unbelievable. This road is so terrible. So um, I think... I like that analogy. That's good. I'm going to steal that and yeah. make, pretend I made it up. That was good. <laughs> that's a good... That's a really good analogy. Yeah. But what about people who undertook a bunch of things uh-huh. and didn't fall? Like, so they were stretching, but they kept going from victory to victory. Yeah. It could be like, you know, maybe they were still victorious, but what a slog it must have felt like at times. And hopefully uh, folks are prompted into a spirit of gratitude for graces received to be able to do that. And Jesus says, you know, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Without me, you can do nothing. And so if I took on a lot and I knew going in it was going to be tough, and I look back and or even in the moment see that I've persevered, hopefully my response is gratitude for the gift of the grace. Maybe it's about humility. Because I think that my, my, let's call it my spiritual problem, is that if I were to um, like discern and map out a big itinerary for Lent and prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, and accomplished it, and went from sort of strength to strength, from mountaintop to mountaintop, 
that I would be proud and I, it would be obscured to me what you said, which was gratitude for the graces given that enabled me to do it. That's humility. Yeah. And I think that if I didn't hit those potholes, didn't fall from those heights, that pride would be my biggest temptation. Hmm. So maybe the uh, maybe for some people, they don't need to hit those potholes, but only proud, arrogant, <laughs> condescending people like me need to get knocked down to be able to say, oh, Lord, I just am desperate for you. I am so reliant on you. I am failing. Yeah. So maybe that's just a, that's just a Tom thing. So. <laughs> no, maybe. But um, I, I, I don't know if I'd be uh, tempted to pride as much, but tempted to, it's, it's, a, it's a related to that, just uh, tempted to ingratitude where I'm just not even aware. And mm-hmm. I ought to be, I ought to, if I were sensitive to the presence of God in my life, the practice of the presence of God, I think I would more easily, like a second nature, be aware always of God's presence and God's grace. And if I'm not noticing that, even to the point of being able to say, you know, be grateful, um, and that's just kind of its own batch of issues, I think. Yeah. You know. Well, and I think that sort of my experience of undertaking extra efforts of self-denial and dying to self, right, those types of things, that when I do them in association with Lent, there is the grace that comes, and I end up in with a mindset that says, this is easy. I, I'm going to do this forever. <laughs> but there's that immediate visionary kind of aspiration that says, I'm never going to stop doing this because it is so powerful. And then all of a sudden, the next couple of weeks, I can't do it. Yeah, it gets hard. Isn't that crazy? I can't, I, I can't do it. Now, there's yeah. nothing like, it's not a physical impossibility, but the weakness of the will, yeah. the disordered passions, concupiscence, uh, the rationalization of my clouded intellect, all of the, the weight of that just comes kind of crashing down and all of a sudden, it's, I'm not able to do what I did so easily, and I shouldn't take it for granted, to your point, Father. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think that um, uh, I'm trying to remember that for the, like, there are things that I started out with this Lent that I've maintained. And those are things that I'm saying, don't take this for granted. Don't take this for granted. You know why? Because these other things that I started and I failed on, I'm like, I didn't choose to fail. Uh, why did I fail? So I, I think I'm trying to live in that, in that ground where it's both gratitude for the grace that has sustained me and then gratitude for the failures because of what it's revealed to me. Yeah. My need for conversion, reliance on the Lord, ongoing surrender, all of that. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so Father, today uh, on the program, uh, uh, we've done the right and wrong stuff, okay? Nice. Now let's, let's move on. <laughs> we want to talk about Holy Week, and I, just like I say that I enjoy Lent more than any other liturgical season, because the reality that I'm Catholic as, is goes beyond my identity as a concept, and it impacts my daily life so concretely, Um Holy Week is, I think, the culmination of that. Totally. And so, why do you say totally? Well, it's you know, it's you know, the general theme of the Lord's Passion, the the desert of preparation, and and our entering into that to uh, be more perfectly conformed with Christ. That that's uh, kind of diluted across all of Lent, but I think in Holy Week and a, you know, all of that still is at play, but now condensed into 
a week rather than a whole season of six weeks preceding it. And so all of that is brought into heightened focus and, and, um, and just, you know, impacts us, at least impacts me just much more uh, directly um, and forcefully, I think. Not in a bad way, but it's just the, the, my awareness of it and, and the invitation to enter more deeply into it is just more acute. And, um, um, and so that's why I said uh, totally, you know. It's like Lent condensed into one week. If yeah. all you did was Holy Week, but you did it well, like, you know, in many ways you did Lent well, I think. So this is great because it's, it's, it's Monday, so we missed Palm Sunday. By the way, when you grew up, did you call it Palm Sunday or Passion Sunday? We call it Palm Sunday. I think our yeah. parish called it Palm Sunday, but its yeah. technical term is Palm Sunday of the Lord's Passion. You know, so, is it really? Yeah, if you look in the Roman Missal, it's you know, it's it's uh, Sunday of the Lord's Passion. Sometimes we these Palm Sunday, but I think on uh, like the uh, the um, the I breviary, the... I think the Roman Missal it, it, that's its full name. Wow. Know? Okay. But, um, I, I could people, be it's wrong. Like, it's like you know, Nativity of the Lord or Christmas. You know, we'll just yeah. condense it down to a simpler <laughs> word. <laughs> I think that uh, one of the big ones is that whole idea of, um, what's it called? Uh, um, What do you call September? The Feast of September 14th. Oh, the uh, exaltation of the cross, or Not sometimes the, the triumph of the, the cross. The triumph of the cross. Yeah. I grew up, it was always the triumph of the cross. Yeah, likewise. But now it's the yeah. exaltation of the cross, right? So, um, okay, so Palm Sunday yesterday, uh, it is, it's, it's that first liturgy where you say, hey, wait a minute, I know in Lent we, it's been different. Like we don't have the Gloria, and we're not saying that word out loud, the right. A word. <laughs> but all of a sudden, this mass got really long. Yeah. And, oh, there's the palms, and so more people are showing up. Do you notice that? Do you notice that more people show up on Palm Sunday? More people show up when there's something extra to be given, I think. <laughs> Ash Wednesday and Palm Sunday. Um, yeah. Those so there, the was a, there was a supermarket chain in the Boston area when I grew up called the A&P. Did you ever hear of that? No. Okay, so like Ash Albertsons. Ash Wednesday and Palm Sunday. <laughs> yeah, and so they would, we, we, back home, the, the joke was A&P Catholics. Oh. Ash Wednesday and Palm Sunday Catholics. <laughs> and so you get the crowds that come. You know, how many Catholics think that Ash Wednesday is a holy day of obligation, right? right? Who cares? Just get them in the door. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right. So now, Palm Sunday, you have two homilies, hmm. right? At the first gospel, before you do the procession, you get to reflect, right? Isn't that right? It's optional. Oh, it's optional. Yeah, it's okay. not required. Yeah. Nice. I didn't even know that. See, this is I'm what I'm I hope it's optional because I've never actually preached at that moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is the thing is that what we're going to do is walk through our own sort of journey through Holy Week yeah. growing up and I'm interested in yours. And then people want to know, Father, what's it like f- to being a priest during the Triduum mm-hmm. when you have so many liturgical events, so many sacred liturgies of different forms and liturgical practices that are happening we want to get on the inside of what it's like to be you so (laughs) or to be a priest uh, and a pastor of a large parish with a lot going on and uh you know we're thrilled to come and dive in but what's it like for you when you're already in we're going to find out talking to father jeff lewis from saint mary's in spokane valley in just a minute hi this is dr tom curran and you know me as the host of sound insight I am also letting folks know that as a realtor licensed in the state of Washington and in Idaho, I love serving Catholic families and others who are discerning a move for yourselves. It's much more than buying or selling a home. It's discerning a whole new life. If that's something that you would find uh, a help in, if I could be of service to you, please be in touch. 
You can find out more at drtomcurran.com, drtomcurran.com. Welcome back to the program. This is Tom Curran. I'm with Father Jeff Lewis. And today we are going to make our journey through through the Triduum. We're not going to go through all the way through Holy Week, but it is, it's Monday of Holy Week. And so you still have a couple of days left, right? Like you were saying, Father, have a great Holy Week. And that kind of is summation of the great gift of having a good Lent. Yeah, yeah. So, Father, growing up, how important was the Triduum to your family and your faith? I think it was... Pretty important. I mean, I definitely have memories of maybe we didn't go to Mass of the Lord's Supper or Good Friday Veneration of the Cross every year, but I know that we went um, uh, because I just, I mean, I have memories of all that. I mean, I think I even served a couple of them as an altar server, but when I outgrew my pastor in eighth grade, <laughs> yeah, no one could see him anymore when I'm holding the book for him. That's when I stepped down from altar serving and took up my, my trumpet and joined the choir. But um, some beautiful music that we would prepare for uh, for both those uh, liturgies. So memories of participating in those at my home parish growing up, and um, in one of those years, I think it was around the, right around the time I was, you know, leaving altar serving and, and joining the choir, that my dad entered the church, and so that year definitely we were we were tuning in to the Triduum because I think it was really encouraged on those entering the church to to attend the Triduum. So, so that would have been that would have been a vigil, going to the Easter vigil. Probably. Uh, yeah, we would yeah. Okay. Now we didn't always go to the Easter vigil growing up, but we did of course that year. Um, but um, most of the time our Sunday experience was, you know, for Easter was the usual Sunday mass time that we would go to anyway, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I've I've good memories and it was it was pretty important, I think, to us. Well what's funny is this is that I just took it for granted that Catholics went to Mass on Holy Thursday. They participated in the liturgy and in the Stations of the Cross on Good Friday, and then went to Mass either at the Vigil or on Easter Sunday. That was just what we did. Yeah. It was just what we did, right? It was it was, it was uh, being a Curran meant doing these things, because that's just how we lived. Come to find out, that's not the way a lot of Catholics live. Yeah. And and it it's like Tom, come on, be obvious. It's it's not that complicated. You have three, four masses on a weekend, and you only have one on Holy Thursday. Don't you think it would be filled to overflowing? Right? You couldn't even get in if everyone was going. Right. And I'm like, yeah, I guess that's so. But typically, those masses were packed. Yeah. And and, and when we were growing up, uh, that the mass on Holy Thursday and then um, the Good Friday liturgies, it, they were packed. Yeah. So I mean, I grew up outside of Boston though, so it was a super Catholic area. Um, okay. So let's talk about Holy Thursday. So you're a priest, and you're getting ready for all of these liturgies. Are you kind of doing um, spiritual exercise and physical exercise to say, okay, I need to maintain here? Do you do something to kind of get yourself dialed in and, and, and attuned to what's happening? Well, uh, me personally, I, I, um, I do make the effort to uh, make extra time for prayer, particularly as I prepare for you know, the homily for Holy Thursday and the sermon for Good Friday and then East, the Easter homily. Um, just because those are, th- like you mentioned at the beginning of the program, those are three big uh, opportunities to to preach to the congregation and to dive deeper, help the folks to dive deeper into the mysteries of uh, the Triduum. And so uh, extra time for prayer really to, you know, not that I just kind of, you know, uh, on a, on a you know, I'm, not, I'm not just a, 
printing these um, pre-made, you know, preset homilies for Sundays. I'm not doing that. I prayerfully prepare for those. But there's some extra preparation, it feels like, for these, particularly because it's always the same liturgy with the same readings. But, I, you know, there's, they're so rich. There's different, different things to emphasize in the preaching. So that's one thing I do is make sure I take extra time for prayer. But another thing I do, and this not necessarily for me, but for the, the people of God, since I was made a pastor now almost 11 years ago, uh, this was my 10th Easter se- season as a pastor, that I've used the occasion to just add extra confession times and really, really uh, encourage folks to make the effort to go to confession as another way of preparing for Easter. Uh, a, it's part of the Easter duty. Um, as they, you know, as they say in the precepts of the church, but um, but also it's just it's just it's just a good thing anyway. Confession's a good thing. So each of the days of Holy Week at Saint Mary, we have one, some days even two, extra opportunities for confession between myself or Father Mike hearing confessions. That's so those great. are two things that I do. Well, and folks, uh, just a shout out to Father Lewis here. Uh, you're so good at being available to hear confessions. Um, how many times have you gotten texts from me saying, Father, I got some kids going to get up there early. Can, can you hear their confession? And then, <coughs> excuse me, if they're not able to, and they end up going through Mass, you'll hear confession afterwards, and then give them communion, which yeah. is just very moving to me and very meaningful. So thank you for You're your welcome. priestly care for my family and reconciling them to God and then getting Jesus to them. So... Thank you for that. And what a beautiful gift. What a yeah. beautiful gift. I wasn't even thinking along those lines, but what good spiritual father. Good job, Father Lewis. <laughs> Thank you. All right, let's talk about Holy Thursday. So what are some of the distinct elements for the um, commemoration of the Lord's Supper is how you referred to it. So Mass on Holy Thursday evening is the beginning of the sacred triduum, the sacred three days. Um, what are some of the distinct elements that are par- part of the Holy Thursday Mass? Well, the two that most people would uh, immediately think of would be um, the washing of the feet, and then at the end of Mass, the procession of the Eucharist out to the Chapel of Repose. And then, um, uh, so those are the two main features. Let's talk about that. Yeah, yeah. So because the first, yeah. I was part of the, like the, the generation that saw all kinds of liturgical gymnastics <laughs> when it came to the washing of the feet. Yeah. So I've seen it where... Um, you know, you have the twelve people sort of representing different sort of segments of the of the parish population. I've seen it where, believe it or not, every person in the church had their feet washed. Yeah, I've seen, and they have certain stations, and you have the priest and maybe the deacon. Priests and the deacons are washing the feet, and everyone lines up. I've also seen it where you have um, everyone come in line to all these stations, and you get your feet washed by the person who was in front of you. Yeah. And then you go and take that position and then you wash the people the person's feet who was behind you. Yeah. What do you think about all that? Here's what's shocking to people when I point this out to them. It it explicitly says in the Roman Missal what ought to play take place. There's three elements to this. The phrase What's the Roman is, Missal, Father? I have oh, no I'm idea sorry. what you're talking about. The Roman Missal is the big book that you see on the altar with the, with the priest as he's celebrating the Eucharistic prayer. That's called the Roman Missal. So it's got all the presider prayers, the opening collect and the closing prayer and the Eucharistic prayer and all, all these things. And, um, you know, in seminary we had this, you know, it's kind of a joke, but it's really just accurate instruction. It says, you know, Say the black, but do the red. <laughs> in other words, the prayers that the priest is supposed to say are printed in black ink, and then the instructions for the priest in terms of what gestures to follow and so forth, that's in red. 
So we can tell at a glance like what we're doing or what we're supposed to say. So anyway, what's said in red about the washing of the feet, when I, when I show this to people, because sometimes they don't even believe me, so I have to show them. I says, and, and after the homily, and after the homily, where it is pastorally appropriate, the, wash, the men come forward for the washing of the feet. So there's three things there. One, where pastorally appropriate. Those of us in seminary, when we, when we were learning about how to preside at the liturgies, language like that indicates that that's, that's the exception to the norm. The norm presumes that you don't do that. Why, that. why that's interesting. Everyone in the world thinks that washing the feet is required. It's actually optional. In fact, the second option. <laughs> how, I, how I read the instructions. So that's the first thing. Two, it says the men come forward. Now, Pope Francis has, has changed that, at least in his own pastoral practice, where it can be men and women. But everyone thinks it's, it needs to be a mix of men and women. But it says specifically men. And then three, it, there's an absent of number. It doesn't say the 12 men come forward. Is this supposed to be like Jesus washing the feet of the disciples, so it has to be exactly 12? I mean, who's supposed to come forward here? The language specifically and strictly read means at least two. It could be as many as 200. But the men come forward. And, uh, but it also, I mean, it does say also that the priests wash their feet. So it's the idea of everyone washing each other's feet. That's, I guess that's nice in terms of its symbolism, but it's not liturgically accurate. <laughs> so let's talk about liturgically accurate symbolism. Why right. does the priest wash the feet? Well, the priest standing in an altar Christus and the pers- person of Christ as yeah, another Christ. These aren't, got, these aren't gotcha questions. This yeah. is helping people understand yeah, and yeah, really yeah. dig into that. Folks, I just want you to hear that, ponder that. That Jesus Christ is active. He is the principal agent of the sacred liturgy. I, I like that language. Mm-hmm. The principal agent. He's the mm-hmm. primary actor of what's happening at the liturgy. And where is he acting? Well, in his primary actor, the priest, who is presiding. Yeah. So Father Lewis has, uh, is, is the presence of Christ. Christ is present in and through Father Lewis as he is doing this priestly work. So Christ the high priest for his people. Okay, so makes sense. Now, the idea of the number 12 men, why would that be, again, uh, symbolically fitting? Yes, uh, it would be symbolically fitting because there were 12 men at the Last Supper, the first 12 priests of the church. And it was, I guess it was after that, that Judas made his escape and went to go fulfill his hatch. So, you know, hatch his plot. Uh, but but he was he was in he was there in that moment when the other first priests of the church were served by Jesus in this humbling way for Jesus, and um, but that well, that's what's interesting to me is that I'm not sure when this became a liturgical thing, and I think it was Pope Pius XII who did it, who started it. Um, you know, not specifying twelve then begs the question for me: What exactly? Is, is this supposed to commemorate? I mean, why not actually commemorate it with, with 12 chosen men? Mm-hmm. And um, now I think a lot of places do that, like the Shrine of the Immaculate Conception in Washington, D.C., where I went to seminary, has 12 chosen men. And, uh, and then the priest uh, who's celebrating the Mass. Are the chosen men priests? No, they weren't. They were, they were, I think, I mean, they were men of the Basilica who are okay. regulars, maybe ushers. They weren't priests. That's another thing is that I can see this Bishops doing this for 12 chosen priests, but of course that's impossible because most priests are pastors, they're doing this at their own parishes. Right. So some parishes have taken, well, who are leaders of various parish ministries? Um, let's have them come forward. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's all kinds of concoctions, but I think the reason why we have all these different concoctions is the lack of clarity, I think, in the Roman Missal as to what exactly is this supposed to accomplish and symbolize. Um, now, this is... 
this is um, this might shock a lot of your audience, but I've not actually ever done the washing of the feet as pastor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and the reason why is precisely because of the confusion. I feel like there's as many people that were like, "Why are we doing this? It's a, it's a sideshow. It's all this and all this." And and these people say, "Well, you absolutely must do it." And then everyone in between is like, "You know, well, I want it done, but I don't want to be the one to do it." Mm-hmm. <laughs> And so it's like, look, I'd rather just everyone be on the same page and hate me together for the same reason. So <laughs> for different to, reasons, for, yeah, yeah, rather than different reasons. And mm-hmm. so by by not doing, I've done, I have done it once, I think, when I was pastor at St. Peter, but there was only two people that signed up for it, and one had to be begged to sign up for it, so it wouldn't be just the one, which wow. would look awkward. I said, you see, I mean. I think people want it done, but they don't want to be the ones to have it done too. So, well, it's um, when you think about it from the the concept of anamnesis, the like the liturgical concept of to remember, yeah. of memory. The way that it operates in Catholic sacramental theology is not that we are putting on a play that reenacts some past event. Memory is that through the ritual established by Christ continued by the church, the event of the past is made present in a real way. Yeah. And so, folks, if you kind of track with me in that, Father Lewis doesn't simply uh, talk in third person about what Jesus did at the Last Supper. He doesn't say, and then Jesus took bread, and then he said, that this was his body given for you. We should do this in memory of him. No, he quotes Jesus in the institution narrative because it's a way of getting at the insight that that event has broken into the present. And so there is a bit of a discordant way that the washing of the feet is taking a like let's call it a more of a secular or lacking the rich meaning of uh, anamnesis, the memory at work in a liturgy, because it's performing a past act in a way that is saying it's present again. Yeah. So I guess I could say, I don't know, I, I've never really thought about that before. So yeah. It's kind of akin, to, therefore, to the Stations of the Cross. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. That's something that I think appropriately so could be something of a play. Like at our school, the eighth graders, usually on Good Friday, but... That's spring break this year. So um, so the Friday before Good Friday, they are going to actually enact the stations. Okay, but we're going to come to that. Okay, okay yeah. so we'll just say, though, that you're... But that's a great point. Yeah. Let's just hold to that point. Okay, yeah. the last thing. Uh, so you talked about two principal features of the Holy Thursday yeah. Mass that call it out as the starting of the Sacred Triduum. Um, and the first has to do with the washing of the feet. And I think that's associated as well with the institution of the priesthood, yeah. right? Because that's one of the principal themes of the Holy Thursday liturgy is that yeah. Jesus establishes the priesthood at the Last Supper. Right. And then the other one is the Eucharist. Yeah. So talk about that. Yeah. So the Eucharist, kind of related to the washing of the feet is, you know, that's another reason why it seems out of place in my mind at the Mass is because it says very specifically that the homily must be specifically focused on unpacking the mysteries of the Eucharist and, and the founding of the priesthood. And we interrupt that to go to this foot wash, and then we come back and actually have the institution of the of the of the Eucharist uh, at the mass. So, um, so the the focus right down to the 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 instructions of the priest in the Rome Missal is the Eucharist. The preaching must be on it. Of course, the mass is centered on that. And then the feature at the end 
you know, most Masses end with the final blessing. The, um, my Almighty God bless you, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Go forth, the Masses ended, thanks be to God, and then we go out. But the Holy Thursday Mass does not end that way. After Holy Communion, there is like a closing prayer, and then the priest solemnly processes out to a different chapel outside of the main worship space of the main church, um, and that's appropriately decorated to be a chapel of repose. And then there, the Eucharist is put into that a side tabernacle, and then the space is available for venerating the sacred hosts up until midnight. Um, and so it just kind of ends. Yeah. Let's talk more about that. We're up against a break. I'm with Father Jeff Lewis. We're talking about Holy Thursday right now, and we're going to move into Good Friday and the Easter Vigil and Easter in just a minute on Sound Insight. So please stay tuned. Welcome back to the program. This is Tom Curran. I'm with Father Jeff Lewis, and we're talking about Holy Week and Holy Thursday. So do you remember you mentioned that at the end of Holy Thursday Mass, there's no closing hymn. Yeah. It's just a quiet moving out of the procession of the Blessed Sacrament. Um, do you have any memories of that? Like growing up, did you do that? Did you get, you know, adoration until midnight and then the... Well, my family, we didn't stay that long. We stayed for kind of the cursory few minutes. But um, my parish growing up in North Spokane, St. Thomas More, is uh, one of those kind of um, larger structures where the main church is in there, but it's not its own standalone building. So we got a side chapel. We got the parish hall and offices and so on. But there is a, a, the, the weekday mass chapel, and that became the chapel of repose. So the procession wasn't a terribly an elaborate affair. We left the main church, crossed around the baptismal font, to the other side of the vestibule, and then we went to the chapel of repose. But that's the idea: is that you know, Jesus, you know, Jesus has left the building. The whole reason for that is that after Last Supper, you know, <laughs> Jesus has left the building. <laughs> yeah, the, you know, it's interesting too because the Last Supper also didn't end as it should have. Yeah. And what helped me to really understand what was going on there was one of Scott Hahn's books called "The Fourth Cup." And the way that the Passover supper should have ended was with the concluding cup. There's four ceremonial cups that uh, one was a cup of thanksgiving, one was a cup of blessing, and the fourth cup brought it to a close. But it didn't have the fourth cup. It just kind of ended. And then they went out to the Garden of Gethsemane. He was arrested and all that. And that's why in the Gospel of St. John, you know, he asked, I thirst. They give him some wine. That becomes the fourth cup. And then he says, it is finished, meaning it is finished, the sacrifice of the Passover. At least that's, you know, Scott Hahn's take. So anyway, that's um, it's when we appreciate that that's what happened last supper, I think for me anyway, the meaning of how Holy Thursday Mass ends becomes just much more powerful and impactful because, because we've, there was no formal closing. It just kind of ended, and then the people went away. And um, hopefully we can you know, stay with the Lord for at least one hour, because that's what he said to his apostles. Could you not keep wake me for one, even one hour? And our mass begins at 7 p.m., so the adoration bit begins more or less at 8 p.m., and then it'll be open till midnight. Um, so four hours are your option. Um, but anyway, yeah, it just kind of just ends. And, it's, uh, and then, um, but there's, there's another liturgical reason for that, because as you said at the beginning of the program, like Holy Thursday Mass, Good Friday, Easter Vigil, they're really kind of three long parts or three acts of this extended liturgy spread out over three days. Yeah, I, if folks, if you want to hear a bit about my own 
experience of Holy Thursday and adoration, I encourage you to go back to last Friday's program of Sound Insight, where Carrie and I talked a bit about having a good Holy Week and, and part of what that was like for us growing up, and then what we do strategically every year to really get our kids maximally engaged in the in the Sacred Triduum. So I would encourage you to plan ahead and think about that. Think about um, where are we going to go as our family? What time does Mass start? Get there early. Get there early so you can get a seat, get, get a pew, and, and, a, and a good seat. If you've got little kids, you want to get close enough to the front so they can follow along. And I want to say that it's often the case, it's not a guarantee, but it's so often the case that music, um, the choir, the music ministries of parishes, they are at their best. Yeah. In the uh, over the triduum, yeah. and that that makes such a difference. Yeah. The liturgical environment, uh, the way that it's decorated for first the, the triduum, and then for Easter, and then the choirs and the music, it just elevates mm-hmm. the sacredness of the liturgy. Would you agree? Absolutely, totally, I would. Yeah. yeah. Well, and you can appreciate that with the music background there. <laughs> That's right. Okay, so let's move into Good Friday. Okay. So. Uh, moving into Good Friday, talk about it. First of all, why is it called Good Friday? It seems like a pretty bad Friday. Yeah, it seems so like it's, a disaster it's, tragedy it's, Friday. It's the worst Friday. Yeah. <laughs> we, we killed God. But I think that's the, that's the paradox of our Christian faith. You know, up is down, black is white sometimes. In this case, the moment of Christ's supreme and awful defeat actually is the moment of his, of his, of his glorious triumph because it was precisely by his death that, you know, dying so that we don't have to, but because he's God, his death has power, and his death destroys death. And um, the most the most striking image I can think of for this is in the film, The Passion of the Christ, when when Jesus, spoiler alert, Jesus dies. <laughs> oh, if you haven't seen that movie, well, now I spoiled it for you. <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, when he dies on the cross, um, there's this interesting cutaway to the character of Satan who's been kind of moving about throughout the whole film. And Satan is somewhere in, it looks like some kind of hellish uh, uh, desert scape, and you would think that he would be uh, laughing and, and chortling and whatever to, to express his victory, but he knows in that moment that he's actually been defeated, and so there's this horrifying howl of defeat. And it's an interesting juxtaposition from the, from the quiet death of Jesus to Satan howling. And, uh, and that's, but that's theologically accurate. That's what happened. And so that's why it's actually Good Friday is because God made something tremendously good happen, even though it was the worst sin we could possibly do, the death of God. Even from that, God made something magnanimous, magnanimously happen that was supremely good. Yeah, amen. That's powerful. So how do we celebrate? Because, you know, when you ask the, the trivia question, what day of the year is is mass not set on? Yeah, right. Yeah, Good Friday. Yeah. Good Friday. Yeah. Well, why is that? You'd figure this is like the enactment of the reality of the mass. Why why don't we have mass on Good Friday? Right. Well, I I think it's um, a part of the answer is because this is Act Two of the three, the three act liturgy, three liturgies, uh, one liturgy over three days. So we've we've had the mass for the Triduum, so to speak. Um, with the Holy Thursday Mass, but also deprived of this. This is how it, how I kind of relate to it personally on a personal level. The um, being deprived of the of the Mass as such. Not to say we're deprived of the Eucharist, but deprived of the Mass as such is um, is another. It's a it's a sacramental or 
non-sacramental reality for us that, that the world is without Jesus right now. Jesus has died, and so if we don't even have the Mass, maybe to heighten uh, the spiritual awareness of what existence would be like if God were not with us. And um, so it's, it's like the supreme sorrow of Good Friday that we don't even have Jesus in the Mass. You know, we, we do have Jesus in the Eucharist. He, um, the idea is that the priest needs to make sure he consecrates enough hosts the night before so he can get through Holy Thursday and Good Friday. So we still receive Jesus in communion, but it's a very subdued, uh, play-down affair. There, there is no Eucharistic narrative uh, prayer. There is no institution narrative. You know, the priest or the deacon leaves to go to the altar repose and comes back with the already consecrated hosts, and the cloth is laid on the altar, and the hosts are put down, and then we go right into Our Father, and then into distribution of Holy Communion. Like the whole prayer, the omnomnesis that you mentioned, all of that, that's absent, because this isn't the Mass. Now, did you mention, did I miss this? Did you mention the kissing of the cross? No, no, we haven't talked about that yet. Okay. Yeah. I'm like, I was like, wait a minute now. There's, there's <laughs> we a, skipped ahead. There's a big deal activity <laughs> yeah. here that happens during the, like we have the commemoration of the Lord's Supper on Holy Thursday. Now yeah. we have the commemoration of the Passion. Right. Okay, so there are a couple of ways that that also shows up, right? Yeah. So we talked about the washing of the feet. Yeah. You talked about the reading of the Passion. Mm-hmm. And again, this is another, another one of those, how does that happen, mm-hmm. right? And so... People have different parts, yeah. And you get to be Jesus, yeah. Right? <laughs> Priest always gets to be Jesus, folks. <laughs> Though I've seen it one time where I think they had a deacon be Jesus, which I thought was really odd, but whatever. Um, or you have a um, a passion play, right? Oh, okay. Right. So you actually have people perform okay. the passion. So is that something that I've never? I think I've heard of this. I've never seen it, and I've I've never done it. Yeah, yeah, so but that the was, reading in parts, we've done that. So, but take the parts now and just put it into an acted form. Yeah, yeah. And so that was uh, that was something that um, I, I've seen happen on on Good Fridays. Okay. Um, sometimes it, it's uh, they'll pull it out of Good Friday and they'll have like a school do it. Like, oh, okay. On um, Palm Sunday. Oh, okay. Yeah, interesting. So yeah, okay. it's interesting the way that they can kind of blend all those things together, yeah. whatever the case. But um, uh, so we have the veneration of the cross, yeah. right? So what is that What is that all about? What does that entail? Yeah, uh, well, the cross, this is another one of those paradoxes of the Christian faith is that the cross for Jesus would be like the electrical chair for us. You know, it's a, tor- it's a although the electrical chair doesn't quite as gruesomely torture somebody, but who knows what they actually physically feel like. I've never done it, and it's an awful thing, but... But um, uh, nonetheless, um, you know, that's what we're kind of doing. We're venerating this torture device, this agent, this, this tool, not even an agent of death, but this tool of death. But again, it's because why? It's Good Friday. This was the chosen instrument of our good Lord with which he defeated death, our worst enemy. Satan and death are defeated by what? By this tool. Um, you know, if we had, it's like, you know... Now, ex- let me just ask a yeah. question. And actually, we're coming up against a break. And okay. my question is, um, on Good Friday, is the proper object we're kissing a cross or a crucifix? Okay. okay, there's my question. We're up against a break. I'm with Father Jeff Lewis. Today, we're reflecting on the great holy events of the sacred liturgies of the sacred triduum. And when we come back, we're going to continue diving into Good Friday. Back in a minute with more Sound Insight.
Welcome back to the program. This is Tom Kern. I'm with Father Jeff Lewis, and we're talking about, well, now we're on Good Friday. So, Father, when people come forward to venerate the cross, is the cross a crucifix, or is it a cross? Does it have the body of Jesus on it or not? <laughs> I guess there's uh, the language of the Roman Missal, um, prefers crucifix, but makes allowance for a bare cross. And um, uh, I can see marriage... Do you have a preference? Both. What's that? Do you have a preference? Oh, yeah. Talk about that. Talk yeah. about one versus the other. Well, I mean, the crucifix makes sense because if you have the image of Jesus on the cross, I think that it can be just the the visual of that can be more impactful for the people as they come forward. And now they're like immediately there present before the image of our of our crucified Lord on the cross. And that can be impactful emotionally and spiritually just to have that striking image. And uh, and then without the cross, though, I mean, um, you know, that's it's one it's it's one day of the year. Well, two days of the year. We also talk about the the feast, of the exaltation of the cross. But a particular focus is attached to the cross as such, because you know King Arthur had you know had Excalibur, all these great heroes of of legend and in real life. You know, there there there's a kind of a the weapon that they use to achieve their victory. And this is the greatest hero of all, Jesus, and his weapon to achieve victory was the cross. So to have a special kind of veneration of the cross, which is the name of this, of this uh, uh, litur- uh, liturgy, um, you can focus on the, on the cross as such. As a as a sort as a object of veneration. Okay, so I'm I'm having a like oh my goodness moment right now. Okay, I can't believe it. <laughs> and it's this: is that I I am customarily imagining it's the crucifix that I'm you know adoring, giving uh, venerating. But I'm not focused on the wood. I'm focused on Jesus. Mm-hmm. So when I would go forward to venerate the cross, I'm always thinking of Jesus. And so I wouldn't kiss the wood of the cross. I would kiss like the... The, the feet of the corpus. The feet or, his, or the knee yeah. or the hand. Right. I'd be kissing the corpus, the body of Jesus. It's like I'm venerating the crucifixion of Jesus, not so much the wood on which the crucifixion happened. Yeah. My mind is being blown, all right? Am I supposed to be venerating the cross, or am I venerating the crucified one on the cross? Yeah. Um, I I don't have the Roman Missal in front of me. I'm sure it has the answer to that. But it's inter- what I do know is, you know, as the as whatever whatever the cross or crucifix is going to be used for this moment in the service, the for the veneration. You know, it's you know it's being brought in by the deacon if present or the priest if the deacon isn't present down the center aisle, and three times stops and it's covered, and three times stops uncovers one arm of the cross and then sings or says, "Behold the wood of the cross, on which was hung our salvation." Yeah, on which yeah. yeah, but it begins, "Behold the wood of the cross." Right. And so the focus leading up to the moment of veneration itself is on the wood, not on the crucified one. So again, the weapon used Man, to my, achieve victory. My entire devotion around the veneration of the crucified one is the way I realize it now. That is crazy. Yeah. Okay, I've got to... This is good. This is happening. I can pray through this some more and think about this some more. Um, okay, so in um, so do you have a, like, hey, what is this crucifix doing here? Get me a cross. Or what is this cross doing here? Get me a crucifix. Or what's the fitting... Um, what's the fitting... Um, 
form of the cross that this parish uses, yes, we can go with that. What's your own approach? Like, what do we use? Yeah, what do you... Like, are you saying, I am not using that, go get me a crucifix. Or, I'm not using that, get me a cross. Or, oh, where's the one that you've used for Good Fridays? Oh, yeah, that one works. Let's use that one. Yeah. Like, what's your approach? Well, um... You have to keep in mind my um, my time at St. Mary has been massively interrupted by COVID, so we, yeah, things were done true. differently anyway. Uh, what we had used, um, so my first year we didn't have the Trudum. I mean, that's the sorrow of life. But uh, the second year, we used our normal processional cross, and uh, we got a stand for it, so we were able to, you know, it was there for veneration. But it was after that, I think it was going into my third year at St. Mary, that this uh, gentleman who's a Knight of Columbus in Idaho made these great out of great boards of pine, made these great crosses with little nail emblems in them, just beautifully well done, and give them to schools and churches, whoever would like to have one. And, um, and so I've, I've used that one, and it doesn't have a corpus, but I've used it because it's, it stands out. It, we don't see it in the church often, but on this day of days, when we're veteraning the wood of the cross, I've brought that one in because it stands out as something that it, we don't normally see or observe or venerate in this worship space it's mm-hmm. somewhere it's in the school and now since then we've got another uh cr- crucifix with i uh, use as a traveling crucifix if we're going off-site for a youth camp or whatever and we want to set up a chapel it's the crucifix we can put in a stand there the i could use that but the stand is um it could be a tripping hazard so i don't think i'll actually use that you know people are trying to come forward and they're looking at the corpus and tripping on the stand so I, what I'll probably use is that bare one that was given to us by the gentleman. Um, again, because of the reasons I said, it stands out as something unique on this day that itself is all unique. So one other element to the Good Friday uh, commemoration of the Lord's Passion, and my kids always bring it up. Oh, Dad, is this that mass where we pray for everybody? Like, (laughs) we pray for veterinarians who take care of dogs that are of foreign birth. Let us pray. I mean, it goes on. It does. It goes on. It goes on. But what what do we gain from that reality that during that day, the church focuses on intercession and for those outside, really. I mean, we pray for those in the church. Eventually, we get there. But what what do you take from that? Well, first of all, we don't pray for veterinarians in uh, particular. I know, I know. It's my kids. They're like, oh, it's that mass. What I would encourage encourage folks to do is is, um, listen to the, the, the... There's a specific sequence of who we're praying for. There is a movement there. We start with... We pray for ourselves, for the for Holy Church. We pray for those entering the church. We pray for those who are Christian but not Catholic. We pray for those who are believers but not Christian. So we're 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 seeing kind of these concentric circles, and we're inviting all of them to come in. But it starts inward and goes out. Yeah. And the last group that we pray for, <laughs> was, I always thought this was interesting. I think we even make our way to those who are not even believers. Yeah. And then the final one is we pray for those in public office. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, that's the bottom of Isn't that great? Beyond atheists are, <laughs> yeah, yeah, are the, the, yeah, those politicians. Yeah. God bless us. But that's the trajectory and 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 so it's by design and um and yeah, it's it's you know, and ideally they'd be like chanted to really add to this. Mm-hmm. They're called the solemn intercessions, not just the intercessions, but solemn intercessions. There's a heightened gravity to it. There's more of them. There's 10 to be precise. And um and and they are preferred to be sung rather than said. 
Um, but yeah, it, the emphasis of intercession. Well, why is that? Why that on Good Friday? Why not that on Easter? Why not that on any other day? Well, because Jesus gave the greatest intercessory prayer in the history of the world from the cross. Uh, Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. As he was dying, he forgave, he's begging the Father to forgive his killers. And so Jesus is modeling for us not just that we, sh- that we should intercede, um, which is important, but, but the power of intercession. Jesus himself, God the Son, felt the supreme need at his moment of death not to pray for himself that he have an easy passing or whatever, but to pray for those who, who don't know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And so we model that. We, we, he models that for us, and we work it into this, to the, Sunday litur- uh, to the uh, Good Friday liturgy. Well, Father, we have one minute and 30 seconds to talk about Easter. Ah, okay, so it's going to be shorter than Anywhere you want. Yeah, no, really. <laughs> Where do you want to go with the vigil, Easter Sunday, even Holy Saturday, whatever you want to touch on, you get a minute and 30 seconds. Okay. Easter vigil. Uh, if you can go to all three of the of the sacred triduum, make your Easter mass the vigil mass because there you see it is the glorious third part and conclusion of the three part thing, much more poignantly and powerfully even than the Easter Sunday, beginning with the blessing of the fire outside of the church, the procession of the Paschal candle, the exultet, which is a glorious proclamation of the Easter message, and those are all absent on Easter Sunday. So Easter vigils got them. Uh, got that going My on. My favorite mass. Yeah. Uh, it, that's a no-brainer. In the current house, we go to an Easter vigil. We want full meal deal, yeah. all the readings. Mm-hmm. We want it all. And it is... it. You want the kids to get, get there early, mm-hmm. make sure you get a good seat, and... It is it. You want kids to gain a liturgical, like soaking them liturgically, yeah. to begin to live their faith in a liturgical manner. So, um, any final words, Father, you'd want to say in the last thirty seconds about uh, the the Sacred Triduum this year and encourage folks. Um, just to, yeah, well, again, uh, encourage folks to schedule it to make it a point to go to these all three of them if you can, or at least Holy Thursday or Good Friday, and then of course Easter. Um, uh, it, it really is, there are different liturgical expressions and, and celebrations than we get in the normal Sunday course. So it's a, uh, a, a good way to expand our uh, approach and our celebration of our faith. Yeah. Go beyond the idea yeah. that you only go to mass when you have to, yeah. right? This is one of those you get to, mm-hmm. right? You don't have to kids, you get to, and you get to really live your Catholic identity in this sacred three days. So, Father Lewis, thanks for sharing these stories. Super helpful. Very interesting. Folks, hope that you've been blessed by this. Join me tomorrow where we'll continue to reflect on this great gift of Holy Week. God bless your day. Join me tomorrow for more Sun Insight.